we're roughly making reference to this book, Unseen Realities, by R.C. Sproul. Um, eternity, what does eternity mean in biblical terms? It means the age of the aged. Ooh, what's that under here? Maybe that'll work. The age of the ages. The age of the ages. Yes? Good morning. The age of the ages. We, um, if you if you read Bible history, you you can act, if you if you're a dispensationalist, you will make a lot of the different eras and ages in the Bible. You can say that well, there was the age of the law when the Bible was given, and the, the Israelite people lived under the uh, under the law that was given in the Old Testament. Um, there are other ages that we we sort of out there in space somewhere: the age of innocence and the age of Aquarius and all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> But they're out there in cyberspace somewhere, or not cyberspace, just space maybe. And, um, you know, people actually trying to determine a period in which has influenced their lives. And uh, the actual age of the law in the Bible has influenced the whole world, really, when you think about it. You think of the Ten Commandments that were given. And um, very largely, the world lives under that moral code in a sense. You take that out of the way and you're, you're left with a lot of uncertainty, a very hard life for many. But anyway, um, so when we're talking about the coming of Jesus and uh, from then till the time he comes again, we're actually talking about the age of grace because Jesus preached and taught and was actually a message from God and it was about grace, it was about forgiveness. And so that in itself was an age. So once Jesus has come and um, reading Revelations and God has done all the things he needs to do to bring us to the end of time, we then pass into the age of the ages, which is eternity, just as Derek tried to bring to us this morning. It, it's, it's undetermined. It's the age of the ages. So that's, what it, that's the sort of definition of it. Uh, this morning, we're looking at um, unseen realities like angels and demons and the adversary. Wow. But angels, demons, and the adversary. And so when I was praying about this, this Acts 19 came immediately to my mind. It doesn't cover all that fully, but it does cover some important things that we need to look at in this series. So we're just reading Acts 19. We meet Paul, a migrant Paul, determined to bring the message of the gospel to various towns and areas, strategic towns, so that if he planted the message there, it would good and well spread from those points to other points. So he's coming, he's coming to uh, Ephesus, and um, we looked at verse 1 of chapter 19. Apollos was at Corinth. He was a man who needed a little extra instruction in the gospel on what it really meant. Paul then took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Who were they following? What, what were these disciples? And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. In other words, once the Holy Spirit was received by these disciples, there was a manifestation of his presence in them and with them. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's Jesus, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I thought miracles were extraordinary. Lovely wording, isn't it? Extraordinary miracles. And what makes them extraordinary? So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What a sight. What an experience. What happening in Christian circles, if you like. Yes. Verse 17, and this became known... Things like that don't keep silent, do they? And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And this too, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And to a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Lovely account by Luke telling us exactly what happened and why. Eternity, realities, Eternity, the realm of the spirit, angels, demons, the adversary, realities. Last week, John opened up our series by talking about heaven and asked the question, is, is that heaven the same as paradise? 
we all have probably different interpretations. When I think of paradise, you know what jumps immediately into mind? The scene in the, gar the Garden of Eden, that sort of thing, you know? And then from that, it usually goes to holidays. And then from holidays, it goes to what really retirement really is, actually doing nothing and in a lovely sunny place. And so you, 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 we sum up these things in our mind, don't we, what paradise is like. And so John asked the question, is heaven the same as paradise? And what makes heaven heaven? The conclusion was that it wasn't so much the general concept of paradise, but being in the unrestricted, unhindered presence of Jesus. You know, I don't know if you had this experience. You, you probably have, you, we, we all know each, each other here. And sometimes there's sort of a freedom of relationship between you, and yet with other people that doesn't seem to be that connect. I mean, I get that. I know what that is. I'm not a very social person. I'm a bit of a loner. And so I'm not very easy with things socially. So I find it difficult. And other people find that too. But you know there's some people you don't find a connect with? You don't find a connect with? And, um, you know, when we're in the presence of Jesus, there'll be nothing like that. You will f we will feel the same as he is. And we can't understand that. Because we have been made into his image. More and more. Our life down here leads us up to that point, and We become more like him. So we won't feel ashamed. We won't sort of feel naked, as it were, without anything. We should feel fully satisfied and fully in person as what he is. An unhindered, an unfettered relationship with the one that we worship now. Just be like friends, but deeper. I think the hymn writer put it, I shall, be, I shall know as I am known. That's what the hymn writer said, I shall know as I am known. So, this presence of the Lord Jesus. John also, in passing, mentioned hell. So we could ask, what is hell? And what makes hell, hell? And the point really I want to make about this, with many ideas about hell, even from the biblical perspective, talking about lake of fire, gives us the impression of physical suffering. But if we look at it intelligently and practically, fire burns up stuff so there is no more. And so what, is it, what, what are we thinking about here? It's uh, as Jesus described it when he told the story uh, in the New Testament, hell is actually a place of torment because he was talking about divies and he said in hell, in torment, he looked up to see something he couldn't touch and something he couldn't reach because he said, now there's a great gulf fixed so that he can't come to you and you can't go to him. Total separation, but consciousness and understanding. And so what makes hell, hell? And I would suggest this morning that we need to look more at the spiritual suffering of hell. We're not going to go into that this morning, but I need to talk about it in person because we're thinking about unseen realities, the realm of the spirit, and it won't be necessarily physical, it will be more spiritual. Just think about this. Primarily, it's the absence of Jesus. So all the good and all the wonderful things that Jesus does for us, he won't be, he won't be there, and neither will be any of his person or any of his goodness. 
And we all try and put it into words, and it's very difficult to put it into words what hell is really like. But we, we need to know about it. And we need to know, as Jesus, be warned about it. And we just need to see it in a greater way of suffering than we've ever seen it before so that we actually make sure we don't go there. Paul said, if in this life we have hope, we're of all men most miserable because there's more to come through Jesus. So I tried in a little way to say some words. The absence of Jesus, where a riot of regret and remorse and blame. Have you been in a situation? I've occasionally watched The Apprentice and it's all blame. Have you noticed that? It's all blame when something goes wrong. Someone tried to blame someone else. No peace. What makes hell hell? A riot of regret, remorse, blame, levels of disappointment beyond anything ever experienced here. Seeing the delights of the redeemed, story that Jesus told, now out of reach, will be like myriads of hands in an unrelenting grasping at cobwebs, continually snapping before you get a chance to even try. No hope. Total separation from all that everyone else is enjoying. And um, this little phrase, it's not a doctrine, it's anything like that, but it suddenly came into the mind. So I'm just going to put it to you. You know, the Bible refers to hell. Jesus underlined the story how that torment will be the ultimate experience eternally. There is no possible reversal of your decision there, as Jesus also made clear in history. What would it be like to be killed but never die? You say that's a stupid phrase. But God has made us with a spirit that's eternal. It's just a thinking phrase, all right? What would it be like to be killed but never die? And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that makes man special and sets him apart from the rest of creation, especially other living creatures? What is it that sets him apart? I just want to refer to one or two Verses in Genesis. We read that God had made the animals. Now, I'm not an evolutionist, I'm a creationist. But if it, the point was pressed, it says about the animals, let the earth bring forth the beasts. Okay? Let the earth bring forth. When it comes to God creating man... It said God formed him from the dust of the earth and man and God breathed into him his own breath, eternal breath, the breath of life, eternal life, and he then became a living soul. That's the difference. He sets apart from the rest of creation. God took special road and a special pathway to create man in his own image, as it were. So, with the spirit of man now tethered to the body, an inseparable way, in harmony, we have a spirit, we have a body, and that makes us a soul. That made him like a body that lived eternally. 
so nothing could interrupt his life at that point, causing him to be separated from God, nor even separated in his own makeup, separating his spirit from his body until they both transgressed the boundary that God had said. And then what is said later in Scripture became true. The soul that sins, it will die. There is no permanent, eternal, harmonious tethering of the spirit and the body now. It means there's that no harmony there and it's violently torn apart. Violently torn apart. Some indications of this are seen uh, in the story of the, uh, the woman in the New Testament who had severe menstrual problems. Um, she had the issue of bleeding and uh, it tells us that uh, for, for many years, for many years, 12 in actual, I think it was anyway, many years she had suffered under the hands of the doctors. She had spent all her money and she was now growing worse rather than getting better. You say, well, why do you say that? Because here was a woman at her wit's end. Here there was no help for her outside of Jesus. And so she reached out to his garment and she touched the hem of it and she said, I will be made well. But the point is that when the body suffers, the spirit suffers. And when our spirits suffer, like being depressed or something like that, you can get very tired or your body can ache. And so there's that disconnect between our spirit and our body. When Jesus made Adam and Eve, that was not so. In actual fact, the spirit being in the body made him an eternal living being. But when sin came in, when they disobeyed God, that tethering was broken and there was no harmony between the two. So it needed something to put that back together. In reality, we find that in Ecclesiastes where the writer says, when we die, the spirit, it can't hold on to the body any longer. It returns to God who gave it. So there's a total disconnect now. But in Jesus Christ, that can be restored. And that's the wonderful thing about knowing Jesus Christ as our saviour. He puts it all back together and then makes us fit for heaven. So that when we are raised from the dead, the spirit now is joined up with our body once more. And we're now perfectly related to God. So the spirit of man, that bit of us that we can't see, but only joined to our body makes us unique as individuals. We are all different, but we are all absolutely unique. There's no one else like you, because you are God's own when you come to know Jesus. Not someone else's, you are his possession. So we're talking about the spiritual. And so in this chapter that we've read this morning, we're talking about, we're talking about spiritual activity. We're talking about things that Paul found uh, as he moved about. If we have time, we'll look at angels, but who knows? Time goes on very quickly, doesn't it? So let's just return to Acts 19. The spirit of man is unique, 
and we are subject to spiritual activity going on in our world around us. It's not only physical stuff, it's spiritual as well. That's what makes man unique. In Acts 19, Paul, he migrates to Ephesus, and uh, arriving, he finds disciples. And who were these guys, disciples or followers, we might ask? Well, they'd been baptised in the way of John and his message was that Jesus was coming and Paul questions, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you received? Because we are spiritual beings as well as body, we are open to the spiritual understanding. Our lives are open to the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And so it was quite pertinent that he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now this would cut across some people's theology. Because they say when we come to know Jesus as Saviour, we have the Holy Spirit then. When we receive Jesus Christ as Saviour, we are marked with the Holy Spirit. We become God's possession and no one can take that away. But there's a sense of reality that we have to acknowledge and assent to God giving us his Holy Spirit so that we might move with his presence and move with his power in our lives each day. So did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That was his question to them. The other question about baptism. His people with two baptisms, ultimately, when they'd been baptised. They had been baptised into John. Now what does that really mean in base terms for us today? Well, it means they were baptised as a matter of conformity. They were baptised as a matter of requirement and law. They were baptised into John. And actually, they did what they did. They were baptised as saying, well, I know Jesus is coming, and I I want to be part of that preparation from when he comes. So it's a baptism of repentance. When we come to the other baptism, which they were baptised afterwards when they believed in Jesus... They were baptised in water. And that was a baptism of conversion. Now, the two are different. Now, why I'm saying this is because we, we live in a strange setup in this country and maybe other countries in the world too. And some people have been christened and they call that baptism. And other people have been confirmed and they call that baptism too. And I'm not rubbishing anything here. But what I'm saying is if we rely on the fact of christening as a form of our baptism into the name of Jesus, the Bible doesn't support that theory. So if you're relying on that, you need to be baptised into the name of Jesus. So what Paul is saying is here, you're relying on a baptism that's actually not relevant now. And so they were baptised, we read, into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, also, the baptism of John was a practical thing. It was more practical, but when it comes to the baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus, something what's already happened, it becomes spiritual. It's actually my first submissive step to the one who died for me. That's spiritual. In my my submission to Jesus, my Saviour, I am being baptised as a demonstration of what I believe here, in here. And as John has said said before, it's an enactment 
of what happened to me when I believed in Jesus. I died and Jesus lived in my life. The two baptisms are different. One's conformity, one's conversion. And so, you know, sometimes there's a need for that in people. We live in that sort of culture today where people haven't been reminded of what the Bible's really saying. Baptism into Jesus' name doesn't really actually do anything. It doesn't save us to do anything like that. It's my first step of obedience. It's my spiritual submission to say, I don't live any longer. It's Christ who's living in me. And it's his power at working me. And I want to show that to the world around me. That's why the baptism into the name of Jesus is important, because that is spiritual. The Holy Spirit, the question that Paul asked. This question by Paul to the disciples sort of puts an awkward tangent or slant, a completely different line of thought to the belief that once we accept Jesus, we simply officially agree to the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in conviction of sin and revealing Jesus as Saviour. Maybe we accept his work, maybe we accept his work, but not his person. Personally, the Holy Spirit I'm talking about. When we went on our trip to uh, Malaysia, um, I, was, I was preaching there, and I found it a bit of a struggle. And uh, there was a main body of the church, and then at the side, I've said this before, so I'm just repeating myself, okay. To the side, there was a little outside bit on there, and there was actually nobody sitting in there whatsoever. The main body of the church was full and um, it just went across my mind, the Holy Spirit was in there on his own. And I thought, he, wasn't, he didn't seem to be welcome in the congregation of the church. They were good people, and as far as biblical truth is concerned, but um, they were more, what shall I say, intellectual about the way that they lived. There seemed nothing, nothing about the radiance Nothing about the joy. They were austere. They were sincere. They were robust in their faith. But something was missing. I just knew it was missing. I just knew it was missing. Is that like us here? Do we acknowledge and accept the person of the Holy Spirit? Is he a welcome guest at our gatherings? Is he welcome? And so Paul, are, Paul knew something was wrong. And so he said to them, Did you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? Their answer is, and this is quite strange, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, Bengal is a name that you won't know, but he was a, a Greek, Greek theologian. He, uh, he, he had, wrote a commentary in Greek, and, um, and he did all sorts of things in Greek because that was his area. But he said he can't understand. They could not have followed Moses or even John the Baptist without having heard of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? So he suggests that they had not been made aware of the need to receive the Holy Spirit. His presence and baptism on earth and in the context of the authentic church. 
So I just want to ask you the question, have you ever, have you ever in a sense, publicly received the Holy Spirit? We can receive Jesus as Saviour, and that's good. And I prayed with a few people back in C Street who came forward to want to... They intentionally said, I received the Holy Spirit. And there need to be that stepping forward of saying, yes, I received the Holy Spirit. I want him. I want him. I want him. I need him. We can have Jesus as Saviour and ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. Ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. So, simply a reception of the Holy Spirit engages us for life and spiritual participation in the body of Christ. I just want to ask you the question, do you ever experience that you're here on a Sunday morning, but you don't really feel part of it? Do you feel needy and want to have something to offer, maybe in worship? You feel, I can't do it like they do. I, that's not me. These are just little indicators that we need to receive the Holy Spirit. He puts us in our place. We can't jump into place in the church. He places us in the church. And as it says later on, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to men. It's his work. So sometimes a simple acknowledgement that you receive the Holy Spirit is what we need to do. Holy Spirit, is that you? Now I just want to say a thing about demons because Paul goes on to say this and talk about evil spirits and demons. And I suppose the real question here that we ask, can I as a Christian be demon-possessed? Can I as a deep Christian be demon-possessed? Got a shake of the head there from Malcolm. And it's got to be a biblical answer. It's got to be a biblical answer. The evil spirits, the relevant question, can a believer be demon-possessed? And we need to look at the witness of Scripture as the most important that we have this morning. Satan is a real fallen angel. And he's in total rebellion to God, so we're not ignorant of his evil schemes. That was Paul's words to um, at least a couple of the churches anyway. We're not ignorant of his evil schemes. Satan demons are real angels and, you know, they're as real as angels are. Angels, think about this, an angel cannot possess a person, let alone a believer. So even a fallen angel cannot possess a person, any person, or even a believer. That's not what God created them for. He didn't create them to possess people. Possession, as we call it, comes as a result of uh, our activity and our getting involved in stuff which actually are the result of the work of evil spirits. It's my getting familiar with that which is outside of God's authority. My getting familiar with that stuff which is outside God's authority. And there are many ways that we can do this. Even tea leaf reading. You know? 
tea leaf reading, games like the Ouija board, which we all heard about and know about, and incantations, you know, uh, we like curses and stuff like that, get involved in all those sort of things. And spiritual stuff, a lady's house I go to working, she has um, a Jesus sticker up on her wall, and underneath she's got a Buddha, a Buddha. And that I find difficult, but um, there you go. Not certain, uncertainty about spirituality and where that's coming from. And uh, it's my getting familiar which, with that which is outside of God's authority. We can be drawn in by TV programs, um, which are about horror and all sorts of things and about evil. We can be sucked in. And it's being sucked in, we become part of it. So it's only with my agreement, really, to be familiar with that and to open myself up, which is going on, then I sort of get taken over. Not being possessed, I get taken over for everything which is outside God's authority. Evil possession. And I want to say this morning, Jesus said about Satan, he is a thief and a liar and an enemy and a deceiver from the beginning. He's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's like a roaring lion roaming about, seeking who he may devour. But the witness of the early church is, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the authority God's given us. You resist him, he goes. And Jesus gave us the example himself when he went out into the wilderness. Dialogue wasn't wrong. Questioning wasn't wrong. But we have the power and authority to stand against him. The power and authority to stand against him. Billy Graham said in about 1960, in about 1960 this was, there is a greater fear emerging into our world which is greater than the fear of death. And it's the fear of living a life without meaning and not having an answer to it. Not having an answer to it. A fear greater than fear of death, which is coming into our world. That's, I, fear of death seems to be, we all, we all don't like the thought of dying, whatever the circumstances are, and that's a practical thing that happens to us. But a spiritual life lived without meaning, without fulfillment, without God's peace, without hope, without joy, is a dead life. Is a dead life. And that's a spiritual need within us. But it's not possible for us as a Christian to be possessed by the devil. Christ has had the victory. He had the victory at the cross over sin, over death and the devil. The writer of the Hebrews said in a clear statement, he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the victory of the cross. So when, un, when we come to know Jesus as Saviour and we give our lives to him, we've declared our faith in baptism, we are distinctively God's chosen and God's possession and nothing can touch us. But we can be affected by things around us. And something happened in this passage we read this morning that needs to be thought about and which is possible to do. To think back in our lives and if we've had any association 
with that which is outside God's authority, it's actually... We, we, the books were burnt and stuff like that. I know Christians who have realised that the music they were listening to, specific records and specific things being said on them, they have destroyed those records because their lives were opened up to something which is outside the authority of God. It doesn't happen to everyone, and it's not in the records. It's not in the records, but it, it's my opening myself up to it and saying. My mother, uh, when, we, when we had the old people's home, she, she suddenly disappeared, and she went to another old people's home up in Beltinge. And uh, my mother's a good Christian woman, as many as you know. But she came she back, you said, she, you know? She said, I've been listening to this music that took me out of this world. I'm going back again next week. I'm going back again next week. And I, something in my spirit detected a danger. Now, I know that particular home has stuff to do with Freemasonry and stuff like that, and I'm not going into that. But it's amazing how, even with beauty, we can be sucked in. and We open ourselves up to Satan himself. So there's a public demonstration of stuff. So we need just to think about our past. If we've been involved in anything that's outside of the authority of God, it does actually be need to dealt with. Need to be actually, as the Bible says, repented of. Repented of. So we're coming to close now. Time's gone. But I just wanted us to give us the opportunity this morning to do one of those two things or both. And I start, we can sort of have the last song and maybe sing that, if that's, uh, or get into the music and uh, some. I just need us to think about this this morning and just to ask yourself the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or after you believed? And is there anything in the past that I need to dis distance myself from and tell God about it because I want the full reception of his Holy Spirit in my life? I want to give, I want to give my life over fully to you. And sometimes we need to just deal with that past. They burnt their books as a public demonstration to separate themselves from that. And sometimes just here in this quietness of this place and the friendliness, you just might need to step forward and say, God, I want done with this. I want, it, I want it out of the way. I just want to be wholly yours. I want to be open to your Holy Spirit and where he's going to lead me. So let's, I'm not quite sure what the song is. He's got it. <laughs>